So the topic tonight is very unusual. Uh, uh, Cyberpunks for Jesus, a praxeology and theology of Christian hacktivism. Um, but I think it is appropriate to consider it in this context. Uh, its utility to you may be marginal, but it's my hope I'll provide some illumination on a subject that hasn't really been discussed at all by the church um, in any meaningful way. Um, I'll be speaking at a very high level, giving you a lay of the land from a historic, ethical, philosophical, and practical perspective. Hacktivism as a topic piqued my interest uh, for a number of reasons. The three most important being my occupation as a web developer, um, and my proximity to the front lines where this sort of war or philosophy would be practiced. Um, two, hacktivism's relatively unexplored nature as a scholastic body of study. And then three, the sheer volume of issues that actually must be considered in any discussion of hacktivism. It touches on issues of governance, from whom do we derive ultimate law and by whom does justice most efficiently get executed? It touches on issues of privacy and ownership. Is information an economic good? Do you own your data? Do you exercise property rights over the knowledge someone else has about you? Uh, definitions of coercion, aggression, self-autonomy, the list goes on. And, of course, uh, the added com complexity of the digital nature of it all. When something has no extension in physical space, it's amazing how immediately slippery it becomes to think about. Uh, when Jonathan told me there would be a period of Q&A at the end, uh, I became disheartened for you all. Uh, since I know that I'll answer all of your questions ahead of time throughout the course of this talk, <laughs> and can't possibly leave you with anything that could be asked. Um, so I originally began to ponder this topic during a thought experiment in uh, one of my political economics recitations, in which we debated uh, why it would be moral or immoral to firebomb an abortion clinic. And being an observant bunch and noticing an obvious lack of charred rubble in the vicinity of the Planned Parenthood in Pullman and uh, Dr. McIntosh's shoes, we came to the conclusion that while it not, might not be immoral, given certain other conditions were met, it would certainly not be strategic. So I began to wonder, what is that more strategic method of saving lives while playing on the offensive? What would that look like? And this is the beginning of such a strategy. Uh, some definitions and granted assumptions are in order. I will not be approaching this topic from a legal centrist perspective. I'm assuming that governments are not our chief sources of natural order. And contrary to those of the Hobbesian persuasion, I do not believe a society without a sovereign ceases to be a society. I believe the issue of anarchy to not be a matter of whether, but which. To quote Professor Alfred G. Cousin, wherever earthly governments are established or exist, anarchy is officially prohibited for all members of society, usually referred to as subjects or citizens. They can no longer relate to each other on their own terms. Rather, all members of society must accept an external third party, a government, into their relationships, a third party with the coercive powers to enforce its judgments and punish detractors. However, such a third party arrangement for society is non-existent among those who exercise the power of government themselves. In other words, there is no third party to make and enforce judgments among the individual members who make up the third party itself. The rulers still remain in a state of anarchy vis-a-vis -vis each other. He goes on to distinguish between these two states of anarchy, describing the society without government as natural or market anarchy, and the society with government as political anarchy or anarchy within power. 
I accept this perspective and am presupposing the inescapability of governance anarchy, as well as the separation of societal order from the existence of a state. When most of us think of hackers, we probably conjure up images of intellectual Robin Hoods, a persona aided by their portrayal in Hollywood movies and participation in shadowy online forums. Most people negatively associate hackers with financial or identity theft, political espionage, and spamming, but there are hacks motivated by more than just personal gain. Hacktivism, as it sounds, is a portmanteau of hacking and activism. While its contextual definitions can vary, here, hacking refers to subversive and legally ambiguous practices of information retrieval or deposit, digital eavesdropping, or privilege escalation, among others. At its most general, hacking can simply refer to the digital modification of information, often resulting in behavior different than a system's original intent. Hacktivism often shares the same toolbox as less savory forms of technological exploitation, but the difference lies in the telos of the hack, the end. What are the actual uh, outcomes, motivations, and collateral damage, if any, of a hack? A hack that resulted in direct loss of life, even while flying under the banner of hacktivism, would be considered cyber-terrorism, not hacktivism. Similarly, a hack that was implemented for financial gain or the propagation of spam, even if it aligns itself with some larger missional goal, would not be considered hacktivism, as its motivations are clouded. With this verbal scaffolding in place, let's examine hacktivism in the wild. On October 16th, 1989, a group of hackers believed to be located in Australia, although that's still unknown, released an attack on NASA and the US Department of Energy to protest the launch of the plutonium-powered Galileo probe. The attack was a computer worm named Wank by the perpetrators, tastefully standing for worms against nuclear killers. <laughs> Designed not to steal money or information or send spam emails, but to spread a message. Upon logging into a compromised computer, users were greeted with this text. Your computer has been officially wanked. You talk of times of peace for all and then prepare for war. Julian Assange, founder of the controversial whistleblowing organization WikiLeaks, uh, an organization I'm sure most of us are familiar with, described this incident as the first example of hacktivism, a term originally coined by the loosely knit hacker collective Cult of the Dead Cow. Instead of the usual malicious motivations of fraud, theft, sabotage, and destructive vandalism, this hack and many others that followed demonstrated another viable application of hacking techniques, cultural activism. On October 21st, 1999, the Jam Echelon movement successfully raised awareness of the joint email surveillance program of the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand by simply coordinating their sending of emails intentionally loaded with at least 50 of the keywords that would trigger a collection response on the part of the Echelon SIGINT program. Be like if I was sending you an email that just said dirty bomb, like AK-47 assassination, that sort of thing. <laughs> just 50 different keywords, and a bunch of people did it at once. And it successfully uh, actually had an effect on the Echelon program. The infamous group Anonymous, often enjoying the public's attention, praise, and blame for every major hack of the decade, made it a stated goal to take down the Church of Scientology, Project Chinology. Through a variety of methods, including DDoS attacks, more on those later, Anonymous disrupted normal operations for the cult. Additionally, Anonymous also architected an effort called Operation Darknet to expose the information of those who consumed child pornography to the public, 
as well as spearheaded a cyber campaign against ISIS-owned sites across the surface and deep web. While often utilizing traditionally illegal methods of information acquisition, these hacks are not necessarily nefarious in motivation. In fact, they illustrate hacktivism to be a valuable, voluntary neighborhood watch over the world's largest community, the internet. The advantages of hacktivism as an offensive weapon are myriad. When well executed, attacks can be both anonymous and scalable. Attacks can come from theoretically anywhere in the world with an internet connection. And in today's world, that's pretty much everywhere. Additionally, the nature of hacking means a show of force from one individual has the potential to cripple entire organizations or even governments. Think back to the initial thought experiment. While firebombing an abortion clinic could risk life, destroy property, result in community spread of fear, and only minimally reduce the actual number of children being killed, executing a well-constructed distributed denial of service attack on an abortion clinic's national website could risk no life, destroy no property, be relatively stealthy, and have a massive effect on operational effectiveness, far more than firebombing one or two clinics. Privacy issues with Christian hacktivists are a valid concern. After all, aren't anonymity, secrecy, and confidentiality good things? It's all a matter of what's being kept hidden, really. Does someone have property rights to their privacy? Austrian economist Karl Menger's criteria for determining whether or not something is an economic good should uh, help inform our answer. According to him, for something to be classified as an economic good, the following four criteria must be present. There has to be a human need that's met by the good. The, there has to be such properties as render the thing capable of being brought into a causal connection with the satisfaction of that need. There has to be human knowledge of that causal connection. And then there has to be command of the thing sufficient to direct it to the satisfaction of that need. And it turns out, Privacy does not meet all four of those qualities. As economist Peter Klein puts it, privacy is not a discrete marginal unit. So what are the tactics of disruption available to Christians in their hacktivist playbook? I'm so happy you asked, rhetorically. <laughs> so we'll look at one. It's not uh, necessarily the place um, for this forum to go through the nitty gritty of each method, but I'll just look at one as an illustration. We'll look at denial of service and distributed denial of service attacks. So a denial of service or distributed denial of service attack operates on the principle of overwhelming the target service with frivolous or bogus resource requests. While the host system attempts to answer the bogus requests, actual requests remain unanswered. For an end user, this can look like an unresponsive web page or application. This can be accomplished in a number of ways, notably with the open source stress testing tool, High Orbit Ion Cannon. The tool functions by sending an extravagant number of HTTP POST and GET requests to the targeted URLs. Significantly, this High Orbit Ion Cannon can be configured to attack up to 256 domains at any one time, making it a powerful instrument for multi-site campaigns. A minimum of 50 users utilizing the tool independently and targeting the same domain is needed to cause any noticeable website problem. A distributed denial of service attack sends these bogus requests from multiple sources instead of just one, often using things like botnets, also referred to as zombie nets or slave nets. Slow loris attacks are an alternative to the brute force method of denial of service, sending a plethora of partial resource requests, never completing any of them until the host server is busy, busy listening to thousands of requests concurrently, unable to address legitimate requests. A stealthier, potentially more damaging strategy for a, uh, a denial of service style attack 
is a degradation of service attack, which aims not to totally shut down a server or host, but instead slows website responsiveness down without drawing attention to the attack. Virtual sit-ins are a legal form of distributed denial of service attack, although largely ineffective unless orchestrated by very, very large groups of people, usually on multiple devices. Um, and honestly, with current security, um, it's pretty much impossible to do that. <laughs> you have to automate it somehow. So instead of automating resource requests like an electronic attack or utilizing a network of enslaved computers like a DDoS attack, a virtual sit-in is simply a group of people all accessing a website or application synchronously with the hope of slowing performance down. There are some cons uh, to this. So there's no actual robust anonymizing framework built into this tool, so I don't recommend you go home and try this out. It is illegal. Um, but you know, if you are going to do it, which I don't recommend you do, but if you are, use like a, a foreign-based proxy server to do it. Um, <laughs> so all this to say, I, I'm hoping to provide a, a very bird's-eye view of the landscape of ethical hacktivism and um, distinguishing it from ethical hacking, which is actually a, a subcategory um, as an occupation. A business may hire um, an ethical hacker to actually penetration test their website to find security vulnerabilities, um, you know, voluntarily without <laughs> exposing something to the public and someone perhaps with more nefarious motives. Um, and that's what I've got. So thank you very much. <laughs>